The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, Cindy Yu on Britain's Invisible East Asians, Leah McLaren on the truth about single motherhood and Hannah Tomes reads her notes on eating alone. Up first, Cindy Yu. This week, Michelle Yeoh became the first Asian to win Best Actress at the Oscars. And not by playing a wise mentor, a martial arts fighter or an exotic villain, those classic Asian pigeonholes. No, the 60-year-old played a struggling immigrant mum in the mind-bending film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which also won Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. Yeo, who is Chinese-Malaysian, dedicated her acceptance speech to all the little boys and girls who look like me. You don't need to be little to appreciate the moment, though. For much of my life, Asians have been firmly out of the spotlight. But in the past few years, there's been a noticeable change in Hollywood, with far more films portraying East Asians made by talented East Asian directors. I've watched these films keenly, their stories helping me come to terms with my own identity and the difficulties of being a first-generation immigrant. Here in the UK, East Asians don't get so much screen time. After my family left China for London when I was nine, I seldom saw faces like mine on the telly. Over time, representation of other minorities has got better, but it seems that East Asians are still largely missing from public life. How many British East Asian politicians or newsreaders can you think of? Or actresses or novelists? There are more than half a million of us in the UK, but you can probably count the number of public figures of this heritage on two hands. There's Alexa Chun and Gemma Chan, a couple of TV chefs and one or two MPs, but beyond that, it's hard to think of many more well-known East Asians. I don't doubt that prejudice once prevented people like Michelle Yeoh from succeeding in Hollywood. LA is notoriously shallow, and there is still discrimination against Asians elsewhere in American life. Ivy League colleges have been shown to discount Asian applicants in the name of affirmative action for other ethnicities. Parents are fighting back in the courts. British East Asians don't suffer these kinds of indignities. In fact, I'm pretty thankful for my parents' good sense in migrating to, objectively, one of the least racist and most diverse countries in the world. But I still think it's worth asking why there are so few yellow faces in public life compared with the US. One explanation comes down to a simple quirk of history. America is just easier to get to for East Asians. People have been crossing the Pacific in search of prospects or freedom for more than a century. In the 1880s, a tenth of the Californian population was Chinese, many drawn by the gold rush. The Chinese name for San Francisco is Old Gold Mountain. By comparison, the history of empire means that Britain's links with the Indian subcontinent and the Caribbean are much stronger. These patterns remain today. While Asians make up a similar proportion of the population in the UK and the US, around 7%, more than 70% of the British Asian community is from South Asia, India, Pakistan or Bangladesh, whereas half of Asian Americans are Chinese. No wonder that, when riding the subway in San Francisco last year, at times I felt like I might as well have been in China with the number of East Asian faces I saw. Head to Washington DC and you'll find plenty of Asians in American politics and journalism too. 
This history goes a long way to explaining the relative differences in East Asian representation. But it's not just a numbers game. I have a theory that it's also about the length of time a community spends in the country. The high-profile industries, film, TV, journalism, politics, tend to be prestigious but poorly remunerated, and employment is not always guaranteed. In my experience, prestige does not always translate across cultures, and certainly for first-generation immigrant families, social status isn't what puts food on the table. The Chinese talk about an iron rice bowl, a job that will always provide. Over time, immigrant children and grandchildren assimilate. They are educated in mainstream schools. Perhaps these kids marry out. Perhaps they lose their ancestral tongue, and these second and third generation immigrants become more like the native population in their values and dreams. Life becomes less about scratching out a livelihood and more about pursuing particular aspirations. They start to imagine other careers beyond the golden trifecta of law, medicine, and finance. Eventually, they go against family wisdom and start to break into the prestige industries. Or this, at least, is a spiel I give my mother when she asks me why I'm not in the city earning much more. It's because I'm so integrated, Mum. Some of America's most successful Asians follow this pattern. Take the Long Island native Nora Lum, born to a family of Cantonese restaurateurs, who in 2019 became the first Asian American actress to pick up a Golden Globe. Her film *The Farewell* is a story of a dying grandmother and granddaughter bridging their cultural gap. Or look at the Denver-born director Lee Isaac Chun, who dropped out of Yale to study filmmaking. His film *Minari* is the story of his Korean parents trying to live the American dream through a small Arkansas farm. It's uplifting to see East Asians gain a higher profile in American public life. If my theory is right, it's only a matter of time before there is a similar breakthrough in the UK, especially now that we have welcomed 144,000 Hong Kongers. Many of them are educated and want to participate in our democracy, just as the Ugandan Asians did before them. That was Cindy Yu. Next, Leah McLaren. If you believed Hollywood, you'd think the world was madly in love with harried, struggling single mothers. I mean, who doesn't love Aaron Brockovich, or Renee Zellweger's character in Jerry Maguire? But in real life, that's not how it works. In recent months, I've unexpectedly found myself the sole care of single mother to two young sons. This has changed my life in unfathomable ways. But the main thing it's altered is my relationship to work. There's just way more of it, the unpaid kind. In October, I went from being a partner, wife, and co-parent to the only responsible adult on deck. My parental responsibility was doubled and my resources were halved. This has resulted in a catch-22 I'm still trying to dig my way out of. My kids need me more than ever, but I've never been so stretched. Five months in, I'm struggling, but in some ways I'm getting the hang of it. The reality is stark. I'm time and money poor and responsibility super rich. As Marxist bargains go, it sucks. And I've discovered that for all our talk of progress and equality, single moms are held to a higher account than single dads. Just before Christmas, I was called into a meeting at my kid's school to discuss the boy's care and appearance. A pair of well-intentioned 20-something female teachers sat me down on a teeny tiny chair and for the better part of an hour relayed their concerns over food stains on jumpers, incorrect uniform, and Frank's unbrushed hair. They wanted to know why the boys had arrived to school late three times in the last month. Because we'd just moved further from the school and I'd misjudged the commute time. They wanted to know why they sometimes hadn't been wearing their school ties. 
because the spares had been misplaced in the move. They wanted to know why I let Solly walk home from school on his own, because he's 10, and why Frank chewed his cuffs, because he sometimes gets anxious. They wanted to know if I was giving him his epilepsy medication each day. Yes, of course. They wanted to know what measures I was taking to ensure the boys did their homework, ate their vegetables, went to school on time, and were held to account for their behavior at home. I said something about drawing up a rewards chart. I answered the teacher's questions politely in what I hoped was a measured conciliatory tone. I apologized for the lateness, the food stains, the unbrushed hair, and promised to improve. I knew whatever happened, I must not get defensive or lose my temper, because angry single mom is not a good look. I thanked these well-intentioned teachers for expressing their concerns. I said I appreciated their support. For the whole walk home, my hand shook. I could not believe what had just happened. Months later, I still can't. The memory of that meeting flooded back this week while watching the TV adaptation of Fleischman is in Trouble. It's a miniseries based on the novel by Taffy Brodeser Ackner, which I read a couple of years back and loved. In it, Toby Fleischman, a middle-aged, recently divorced liver specialist living in Manhattan, wakes up one morning to find his estranged wife, Rachel, has delivered his children to his apartment in the night. When he calls her up to demand an explanation, Rachel mouths some vague platitudes about gas masks and me time, then vanishes into thin air. In the days and weeks that follow, we watch Toby as he dashes around Manhattan, delivering his children to day camps, sleepovers, and playdates, juggling babysitters, sleeping with random internet dates, and occasionally popping in at work to treat a critically ill patient in need of a transplant. The drama is propelled by the mounting chaos of Toby's life as a harried, reluctant, soul-care single dad. His troubles, we are constantly reminded through flashbacks of his difficult marriage, are the fault of his selfish AWOL ex-wife. We empathize as Toby struggles to hold it together, to keep the wheels from coming off the careening cart of his world. We feel for him. Everyone does. Sympathy is heaped on Toby at every turn. School parents, colleagues, old friends, and new flings offer support. Friends turn up at his apartment with power tools, six-packs, and Chinese takeaways. Pity invitations stream into his phone, along with a constant churn of unsolicited dating app porn. And yet, each new obstacle Toby faces adds fuel to the roiling bonfire of his indignation, an indignation born of the fact that he's been left on his own with the kids. As his anxiety mounts, we find ourselves enraged on Toby's behalf. It's an emergency, goddammit, a tragedy. The mother of his children is missing. The point is not that something terrible may have happened to her or that she may be suffering, but that Toby is suffering because of the inconvenience of her absence. He needs cover. He has plans. Toby's an exhausting, myopic, self-involved Eeyore. But we forgive him because he's also something much more important than that. He's a good dad. Toward the end of the series, however, Toby is finally confronted with the flip side of the narrative when a friend solves the mystery of what became of his wife. When we learn what's happened, we are forced to accept that what Rachel has gone through is every bit as agonizing as Toby's experience of the past three weeks. But does her ex-husband see it this way? No, he does not. Toby's response, which is both startling and perfectly in line with his character, amounts to, yeah, well, so what? And with this single turn of the screw, so much of the sympathy we have for Toby drains away in an instant, or at least it did for me. 
That scene hit me like a punch to the gut. It made my hands shake the way they did after leaving that meeting at my kid's primary school. The revelation was simple but powerful. Reverse the genders? The plot of Fleischmann doesn't work. No one would buy it. That sucks. That was Leia McLaren. And finally, Hannah Tomes. To some, the phrase table for one, please, is among the saddest in the English language. Perhaps this isn't a surprise, though. The concept of social dining for pleasure dates back to ancient Greece. There, meals would be served at all-male gatherings on low tables so that the guests could recline while eating. A recipe for heartburn, but luxurious nonetheless. Then would come the symposium, the section of the evening dedicated to drinking. Although we mix the two a little more fluidly now, the concept is much the same. Sharing a meal and drinks with others is an enjoyable thing to do, so people do it. As such, eating alone has long held a kind of stigma. But I relish the time with my own thoughts, especially in a city as relentless as London. Friends often ask if I feel judged for sitting alone, especially as a woman, or wonder whether other diners will take pity. Maybe I've been stood up. But truthfully, nobody in a group is very interested in what's happening at the next table although there's no better time to people watch than when you're alone, because strangers' eating habits are riveting. Dining alone is a phenomenon that is on the rise. The latest figures from booking platform OpenTable showed a 160% increase over four years in bookings for one, while many restaurants are installing bar seating to accommodate the growing number of solo diners. I've read lots of articles recommending the best places to eat alone or offering tips for doing so. One of the most luxurious things I've ever done for myself was to have a solo lunch at Borough Market. Six oysters and a glass of cold white wine on a roasting hot day. The wine was almost as clear as water. I chatted to the barman who talked me through his shucking technique and recommended the best dressings. Then I read a book for an hour or so. And there is no guest on earth who would have improved the experience. It's important to draw a distinction between loneliness and comfortable solitude. The former is a tragedy, the latter a blessing. The Wellbeing Index revealed in 2019 that almost a third of British adults eat alone most or all of the time. This is surely a figure which will have been exacerbated by the pandemic. But eating alone could help remedy this. I often spot people who have booked for one striking up a conversation with a neighbouring diner. They've ended up not eating alone after all. It's a cheering sight and one of the most pleasant things about heading out alone. Dining by myself in Chinatown one evening, I started talking to a well-heeled older woman who was also alone eating a noodle soup with admirable elegance. I'd ordered salt and chilli tofu, soft and spicy with a crunchy exterior, which she'd never tried, so I offered her a taste and she accepted. She said she'd come back again and order it. I sometimes wonder if she did. That's everything for this week. If you enjoy those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week.